Hey, are you wanting to learn more about your Enneagram type or maybe even discover your Enneagram type? Are you looking for how to take the Enneagram test? Well, check out Crosspoint Ministries' newly designed Enneagram testing experience. Crosspoint has been using the Enneagram with Christian pastors and leaders for more than 15 years, and they've made taking the WEPS test a simple and optimized experience. You'll get your test results immediately, no emails needed. Your results are displayed in a clean, easy-to-read, and downloadable format. Plus, you can create your own account where you can keep your test results, download your profile, and track your personal growth all in one place. To take the test, go to crosspointministry.com slash Enneacast, and you'll get 20% off your first test. Just use the code Enneacast at checkout. Again, go to crosspointministry.com slash Enneacast and start your journey today. What kind of world do we want to be in, to live in, and create? That's what's at stake when we talk about justice. This is a show about self-discovery. About understanding ourselves. About looking into the mirror to see the good, the bad, and the unknown of who we are. This is about how we relate to God. And everyone else. From Love That Neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome. 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 To the Enneacast. Hey, welcome to the Enneacast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Lindsay Lewis. Every episode, we walk you through the Enneagram. And today, we're going to be talking about the Enneagram and justice. This is also an important topic for us at Love That Neighborhood. If you yeah. listen to our other podcast, 50% of the topic we cover is around the issue of justice. And so this is something that's important for us as Christians. It's something that's important uh, if you are an active member of American society, then you know that this is something that is uh, surrounding you and something that, that we need to value. Yeah, I just wonder myself when I find myself in the present moment, what is it that causes me to respond to one you know, news story differently than my spouse or my sister. You know, we're all seeing the same news, but we're obviously not responding in the same way. And so the question then becomes, how does my personality relate to the topic of justice? So to help us with the subject today, we have a special guest, Sean Palmer. Sean is the teaching pastor at Ecclesia Church in Houston, as well as a sought-after national speaker. He's also a writer, and his most recent book is called 40 Days on Being a Three. Enneagram Daily Reflections. He also co-hosts the Not So Black and White podcast and was named one of Christian Standard Magazine's 40 Leaders Under 40. He lives in Houston with his wife, Rochelle, and their two daughters. Welcome to the show, Sean. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we are glad to have you with us. Well, let's start here. Let's talk a little bit about the topic of justice. And I think that we need to start by getting some common definition and some common terminology, you know, what is biblical justice and what is it not? Yeah, that's such a great question because it's so incredibly formed by our narrative of both um, things like our family of origin, things like where we grew up in the United States, that in fact, we grew up in the United States for your listeners who live here. If you grew up in a different country, it has all of these textures so when Christians talk about justice, there are really two forms of justice that are predominant that we talk about the most. And one of them gets over talked about. And that is 
retributive justice. That is, you did something and now you have to be punished or pay back someone for that justice. So when people think of justice, they think of like an eye for an eye sort of thing. And that's a real thing that exists in the scriptures. It's about holding people accountable, designed to hold people accountable before they do something. Basically like, don't take an eye because you don't want to lose your own eye, right? But then scripture also talks about, and what's actually more predominant in the Bible is redemptive justice, which is to make things right, driving things to make things whole, to set them as they should be. This is the ministry of Jesus. This is actually what all of the the Old Testament or the First Testament um, is driving to, is how do we live in a world that makes things right when things have gone wrong? It is, in my view, um, the big project that God is up to in the world is setting things to right. Um, It's a relational term, not a punitive term. It means loving your neighbor as we love ourselves. It's rooted in the character and nature of who God is. Someone who is working to make things right when things go wrong because we live in a broken world. Yeah, I think about the fact too, um, you know, the word righteousness, the word justice, that in, in so many places in scripture, they're synonymous, you know. So when churches are like, hey, we need to live righteous lives, that is also to say we need to live just lives um, and that you really can't have righteousness without justice and you can't have justice without righteousness. Those things interplay. And we are ultimately all redeemed through the righteousness of God, through justice. At the end of the day, what justice is, is what Jesus is doing in the world. And that has implications for how we function as individuals, as families, as couples, as um, citizens. We live in a place and a time where justice is primarily identified by things like the myth of redemptive violence, right? You did this. And so now we um, visit violence on you that is of a kind that is like yours, whether that's imprisonment, police brutality is redemptive violence. And so we have Christians living in a space right now where we have essentially a criminal system that we call a justice system. We don't actually have a justice system because justice is concerned with redemption and wholeness. It, so it has elements of sacrifice and self, self-giving, those ideas of kenosis, which the average person on the street and the average person in the pew does not associate with justice. Biblical justice associate things like Luke 4, freedom for the prisoners, because we're all kind of captive to something. And that is almost completely absent in our discussions of justice. So if we're talking about God bringing that full justice to all things, that restorative justice, what is our role for justice here and now? And how does our faith inform our response to the world around us? It's in our relationships, in our culture. Think about just raising children, for instance. My daughter, I'll just tell you a quick little story. Two days ago, she goes to a private Catholic school, all-girls school, There's high level of trust in and amongst their community. Um, She's waiting on me to pick her up. Uh, She's sitting in the library and gets up to go to the restroom. She leaves her AirPods case on the table in the library. 
these girls, like we're clearly like the poorest family at this school. <laughs> but, <laughs> but she comes back and the case is gone. Not in the lost and found. No one saw anything. Clearly, I mean, the odds are that someone took them. So this is actually a parenting conundrum in miniature. Do I say, you know what? You shouldn't have left them on the table. I don't care. It's your responsibility. I gave you those as a gift. Like you have to pay the full price of getting that repair. Or do I say like, that's not your fault. You should have been able to leave them. When someone steals something, it's only the responsibility of the person who stole them. And this is really a question of whether or not you believe in retributive justice or redemptive justice. I want her to know that in two years, when she goes off to college, she can't be that cavalier about her possessions. But I also want her to know that this is not her fault. So do I make her pay to replace her case? Or do I pay or do we do something in between? So when you ask the question, what's at stake if we ignore justice? Just about everything, because it informs how we go about interacting with other people, knowing that the world is broken and these things will happen. When we are done wrong, when other people do wrong, and when we do wrong by other people, what kind of world do we want to be in, to live in and create? That's what's at stake when we talk about justice, because we are going to make a decision. We're going to live a certain way um, based on whether or not we put the emphasis on a retributive style of justice or a redemptive style of justice. Hmm. So what did you do? I bought her a new case wow. because it wasn't it wasn't her fault. Yeah. And she's a really good kid and super responsible. And she's a one on the Enneagram mm-hmm. and would feel guilty about that. <laughs> I love that. But I feel the tension even as you're saying it of when you gave the first option of, you know, you shouldn't leave your stuff. You know, I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's what every parent has ever said ever, you know, and <laughs> that's what would happen on a TV show. That's just understandable. But then when you gave the alternative, it's like, oh, yeah, that's actually what I'm all about, you know. But sometimes we don't even realize that we're not living into what we really believe, like what our values really are, because we're just accepting whatever's been fed to us, you know, from whatever institution, you know, that we're a part of. So um, so tell me this. How do we bring the Enneagram into this conversation? What is the benefit of the Enneagram when we're talking about justice? So when I conceive of the Enneagram, when I think around the circle, what I think of predominantly are love and energy. What births our numbers, our core numbers around the Enneagram are the ways that we have tried to seek love and what gives us energy and what drains energy from us. And so when I put those together with justice, there are places, particular issues that I have a lot more energy about. And then there are processes, right, to get to those ends that um, I have a lot more energy about because that's how I give and receive love. And my core assumption, as all of us around the Enneagram, like our core assumption is that the rest of the world works the same way that we work, right? That's the beauty of the Enneagram is it brings a, it pulls us out of that assumption. So when there's an issue on the table, 
that's a justice issue for me. Anger does me no good. I'm an Enneagram three. I'm feeling repressed. It does me no good. My wife who and my oldest daughter, who are both ones on the Enneagram, anger points the way for them. I got to tell my wife, I have been black my whole life. She has been black zero days in her life. So things that happen around racial justice that we care about deeply, she'll get mad about. And I'm like, if I were mad about racial injustice, I would be mad every day. And that would keep me from reaching my goals or doing enacting the things that need to be enacted. But that anger for her fuels her into action where the same emotion for me, because I'm a three and I'm feeling repressed, would put me in a state of inaction. So the more we know about ourselves and the way that we receive the world and how we're moving through the world, the better we are at filling the holes that need to be filled to get justice work done. Does that make sense? Well, let's do this then. Let's go through each of the nine types and look at some of their resourceful, non-resourceful responses to justice, as well as maybe some ways that each of the types can grow in their discipline of justice. So let's start with the heart triad. So type twos, the helper. Sean, what comes to mind when you think of type twos and justice? Type twos, what they are so wonderful at is knowing what um, other people are feeling, feeling it very deeply and and moving toward those people. They want to help. They want to be involved in helping. They are so great for justice efforts that require a certain level of interpersonal skill. When it's a person, when it's someone in front of you, you know, I think about our church staff, there are about 30 plus of us on church staff and our twos, the way that they walk with people in ways that I can't because of what they are intuiting. They bring so much care and compassion and maybe even more important than that is solidarity. Mm. Okay. So I've been working on this, uh, this idea of how they perceive process and present as it relates to justice. And so here's what I do for each of the nine types. I'm going to like pitch you my idea. And then I want you to tell me, does it feel true? Does it feel like that works or not? Okay. So, so for type twos, they perceive people's pain, they perceive people's need, they perceive injustice. And then the way that they process would be like, they emotionally empathize with people that are in pain. And then they immediately begin to feel sort of a relational draw to them. Like I'm available to help and I want to. So the way that they present, they present by moving towards people in need and going into service. How's that land with you? Um, The only tweak I would make is like, they're not just available to help. Mm-hmm. They are going to help. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I think that's dead on. So what are some of the non-resourceful ways that a two might respond to justice or perceived injustice in the world? Well, one, the first one would be that twos don't give enough time and space to figure out what needs to be done versus just doing something. Uh, and I'll talk about this again with because eights have the same problem, but twos will do it in an interpersonal way because of their thinking repression. They don't strategize around what needs to happen. They just know something needs to happen. Let's say this silly example, there's a death in the family of someone that they love. Like a two would be the first person to bake cookies and bring it over 
and they will have forgotten that the person who they're bringing the cookies to doesn't eat dairy, right? <laughs> they just load it up with butter, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because it's just that that need to be needed and twos have this social personality where they're trying to earn attention. And what they need in that space is wisdom and faith. Like it's not all going to fall apart if you don't interject. Your self-image and your identity aren't wrapped up on you being motivating and encouraging at this moment. So take a pause. If you're a two, take a pause and force yourself to think about what needs to happen. And then like what in that circumstance is yours to do versus not yours to do. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to type three, the achiever. My favorite type. Yes, I thought you might say that. (laughs) How does this type tend to respond to justice? Well, it's really interesting, I think, with threes, if you can get a three to respond to injustice. As a three, I think we have kind of a longer road to walk to get to the point of intuiting that there is an injustice because threes absolutely hate complainers. If a three hears you complain, about something you can change, like they're done with that conversation. Yeah, we don't like fatalism. Like if there's a lot of fatalism in the conversation, inevitability, that doesn't sit real well with a three. Like you want action steps kind of thing? Yeah, like do something. Like you should do something about mm. what's going on. Yeah, that's that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly what I mean. Yeah. I, I think for most threes, it has to be a significant injustice just to get a three on board. But the flip side of that is because we are in the feeling triad, like threes can know that you're in pain and just not care because we are so feeling repressed that we would think, you know what, I get that you feel that way and that there are a lot of people who feel that way. Now go do something about it and you can stop feeling that way. But that perception of people's pain can be really useful. If in a healthy space, a three gets to a place of that is a real problem, that's pain that you shouldn't feel. Let me now help you organize, strategize. If you are in a place of experiencing injustice, that a three is your biggest cheerleader on the Enneagram. Because once they're on board that you can do it, you will never find a better cheerleader. Mm, Yeah, that's good. Let me pitch my perceived process and present to you. Okay, so threes perceive people's pain and need. They perceive the injustice. They process by sort of feeling, sort of not feeling, you know, but relationally speaking, um, if they don't have the emotional connection, they've got the relational connection. They process by the thought that people need to know about this and we need to get some organization around this injustice to make a difference. And then the way that they present is that they move toward uninvolved crowds to share stories, acquire resources to help and direct people toward action. What what do you think? Yeah, I really like what you said about the way they present that. That's part of the cheerleading. That's part of the motivation. And, you know, there is a downside of where you are. You're taking advantage of someone's story just to present a story, you know, like, yep, yep. Like that's kind of shady. But at the same time, threes have this ability like, okay, I see what's going on here. I've heard their stories. And now I can communicate that emotion to groups of people. We touched on it a little bit at the front, but what's a non-resourceful way 
that threes respond? And then maybe how can they grow from that? Right. Threes have a tendency to refocus the attention on themselves, not because they're trying to, but because their talk style is self-congratulatory and self-proclamation. So it becomes about them. The thing that you're trying to work on and fix becomes about the communicator. And I think that ultimately hurts justice causes because it leads to deceit, not only for the three themselves, but for the people who they're trying to bring along. So in terms of growth, I would say for, especially for justice, travel, travel is great for threes because they get to see how the rest of the world is not as consumed as American culture is with image and images of success. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. Talk to us about type four, the originalist. How do these folks intersect with justice? So I'm really involved with a ministry here in Houston called Restoring Justice, and it is about uh, reforming the way that prisoners are treated. And one of the programs that they have is called Adelphoi. And what Adelphoi do is you basically, for lack of a better word, kind of adopt an inmate who is pre-trial or has been released from jail, and you just journey in life with them for a while. And there, there are so few of us who can do that because fours bring this ability with them to just sit with people and not try to fix it. It's just absolutely incredible to enter into really hard spaces with people, to hear and carry stories and not feel overwhelmed by them is something we desperately need in justice work. Some of the people who I know that write the best liturgies are fours And that's because they can go into the darkness and no justice work can be sustained without spiritual disciplines and robust worship. And that's another area that they serve. Yeah. Okay. So here's my perceived process present for, uh, for these folks. When type fours perceive injustice, uh, they first, they, they perceive people's pain and need. And then the way that they process is that they use their imagination to empathize and connect with those in pain. So they tap either into their own memories or they imagine themselves in that person's situation and they empathetically attach to them. The way that they present themselves is that they first connect relationally with the wounded person, but then they also begin to speak up on behalf of the wounded. So how does that land with you? When I think about the fours I know where they speak up for, um, and this becomes super stereotypical and I hate for it to sound that way, where they, where I see them speaking up is through creativity and arts. It's through music. It's through poetry. It's through liturgy. It's through things that are primarily aesthetic. I see the fours that I've known and interact with. They want to bring, bring beauty into unjust circumstances. Mm. So what are some of the pitfalls for a four if they find themselves in a non-resourceful space? And then where can they go when they want to grow? Yeah, so um, fours can actually be pretty dismissive if they don't find something personally meaningful. Because remember, at the heart of that four is this idea that um, that the, the deepest meaning is what I assign and what's going on in my interior world. Like they are all in their feelings all the time. So if they don't feel it, they can be dismissive of it. So you get a three and a four, for example, like working on the same cause. 
a four can very easily become dismissive of a three because um, she's not thinking very deep or he's not thinking very deeply. And a three can become very dismissive of a four because like, you know what? We only got so many minutes to talk about your feelings. We got to get some stuff done. And so those become non-resource because they are so ideal. Fours are so ideological about what they do. And it's hard to get them to actually do anything if they don't feel it. Well, you just described my inner battle between my three and my four. Yeah. So, uh, right. yeah. So that, that relationship exists inside of me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, stay with us because when we come back, we're going to continue to make our way through the head and the gut types as we continue to explore justice in the Enneagram with Sean Palmer. Stay with us. Hey, it's Anna, the media editor. Recently, I've been taking some time to talk with the parents and guardians of some of our alumni about how serving with Love Thy Neighborhood has impacted the life of their child. Hi, this is Kimberly Craig. And I'm Steve Craig. And our daughter, Kirsten Craig, served with LTN in 2019 and 2020. As I talked with the Craigs, Kimberly mentioned the holistic learning that Kirsten received. From practical skills like money and time management, relational skills like conflict resolution, and also spiritual growth and counseling. This was the first time Kimberly and Steve had sent Kirsten off on her own. And naturally, Steve had some concerns. It was comforting to me knowing that LTN is a organization that truly does care about their interns and they work hard to put that stability element underneath their feet as they learn and grow in Christ's promises. Yeah, we're just really thankful that from LTN, Kirsten was very confident at the age of 20 to move out on her own, get a job. We were so thankful for LTN. Absolutely. To learn more about our program and internships, head over to our website at lovethyneighborhood.org. Find a place where social action and Christian community meet by checking out lovethyneighborhood.org. Hey, welcome back to the Enneacast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Lindsay Lewis. We are talking about justice in the Enneagram with our special guest, Sean Palmer. We've just wrapped up talking through the heart triad. And so now we're going to be talking about the head triad. All right, Sean. So let's talk about the type five, the investigator. How does this person respond to injustice? So, so great. I want, when I'm working on a project, I want a five along because I love someone else who will do all of the homework. Yeah, yeah. They are the folks who want to investigate, they want to think through, they will master a subject as we are engaging it. So that's like the first person that you want to call if you've got like a crisis response team or you're trying to figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. They are your person. Okay, so here's my pitch for how they perceive, process, and present. They perceive injustice, so so they see people's pain and need, and here's how they process. Through research and contemplation, they seek to understand the facts, historical factors, and ideologies that created this situation. How do they present? They present by, they synthesize the massive data into something that is easier to understand to ensure others are informed correctly and see with accuracy. I think that is great, especially about synthesizing data. Because they are analytical and distance, they see the abstract, and they can also be very inventive about how to get things done in, a, in, the, in the healthiest space. 
um, wise and even energetic when they once they feel like they have mastered enough data to form a relatively um, sound and reasonable conclusion. Yeah, I feel like just listening to those descriptors that you gave, I feel the lack of emotion after coming from the heart triad. It's like, this is something completely different. This is a whole different approach. It's a different way of processing it. Yes, I mean, it strikes me really strong. So so we talked a little bit about some of the resourceful things. Um, Sean, what would you say are the non-resourceful things that come out when a five is looking at justice issues? Well, um, they fundamentally move away from others to deliver reason and they can stay there forever, right? There is no place of enough information. And so they actually need, like if you were a manager or working a side of five and they were working on a project, what you'd probably have to tell them is you've got three days to look into this and get back to me. Because if you don't do that, in three days, they'll be like, well, there's still a lot of more, lot more research that we need to do, or there are some things that we need to know. And they withdraw to go down the rabbit hole because fives believe that eventually there's a bottom to it where they will know everything that they need to know, but there is no bottom to it. There is no everything you need to know. And it is learning oftentimes without doing. And then they also lack an emotional vocabulary. Communicators tend to use emotion-driven pledges and to overcome obstacles in those moments. Fives don't resonate with that. They They just want the data. But then they don't know then how to deliver that data in a way that is compelling to other people. So what would you say are some ways that fives can grow? So one of the places where I think fives have the most opportunity to develop, first of all, an emotional vocabulary, and then to embrace and sit in storytelling. Like to um, have people that they know, love, and trust that they can tell their story to and to be put, put themselves in positions where they can hear stories and allow that to be enough. Like the data does not have to always drive the direction. I love that. Okay, let's talk about type six, the loyalist. How do these folks intersect with justice? Wow, six is actually some of my favorite people. Yeah. And because they are all about duty. Mm -hmm. And to do justice work, you need people who say like, this is a wrong in the world and this is my part to do something about it. Like I have a duty to do something about it. And at their most mature, they are loyal, they're courageous, they're confident. They are the people who are going to look for all of the places that the rest of us don't look. They're going to ask the hard questions. Where a five will go off in their cave and think through everything, a six will sit in a meeting and ask you, like, how is this going to work? Is there a process for this? What if this happens? What if, what if, what if? So They ask it a lot of different ways, but a six's most frequent question is what if. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so here's my pitch for perceive, process, and present. So they perceive injustice. They perceive people's pain and need. How do they process? They find danger that others may have overlooked, as well as flaws in the systems that are surrounding the people involved. How do they present? They locate the immediate threats 
that may still be active and get people to safety while also working behind the scenes to ensure stable and consistent movement towards justice continues to happen. It's kind of a mouthful. What do you, what do you think? I love what you said about um, processes that over people have overlooked. Mm-hmm. The sixes that I know and love and work with, they are always asking about processes mm-hmm. and um, quite frankly, get very upset when people work outside of the process because what for a six makes the world work is this idea of, you do your part and I will do my part. And yeah. that's the way that it works, mm-hmm. which is great in justice work because they can see around the world when people aren't safe and they want to get involved. This is a great thing about sixes. They want to be involved to cure that situation and they have the stamina and the fidelity to do it over a long period of time, which a lot of us lack. Mm-hmm. Yep. What are some of the unhealthy traits that we might see come out in a six when they're facing issues of injustice? Um, well, there is partly becoming like overcommitted to too many things is off, often a problem. They can go in deep for a long time. And then if other people aren't responsive to the process, they work outside the system, especially someone that they have put a lot of loyalty and trust in and that person breaks that then they get very tired and distant and withdrawn. But they can also reject and dislike people who disagree with a system that they created. So I'm sure you've all heard, like when sixes ask you a question, they're not asking for your opinion. They're asking for you to confirm their opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. Uh-huh. So, you know, when they have spent, when they have come up with a process, which they love, and then you dislike or disagree with that process, they intuit that and feel that in a way that many other numbers don't because part of them believes that their personhood is connected to the processes they create. So if a six finds themselves kind of stuck in those loops, what are some ways that they can grow? Yeah. So, um, Every six needs a group of friends, like just one or two, that will help them rightly perceive what's actually happening. They are loyal because they need and crave loyalty and they need relational loyalty. They need people who they can trust on, trust in and say, like, when I pick up the phone, when I send a text to this person, I know that what I will get in return is support and not questioning. They also need people to call them out of their pessimism, that things are just going to be terrible. They have a tendency to catastrophize. When the things that they've come to trust in fail or they perceive them to fail, it does feel like a catastrophe. It feels really, really bad. And so they need folks to remind them, oh, you know what? It hasn't all gone away. We're still here. You are still here. So community is hugely, hugely, hugely important for sixes. All right, let's jump into the seven. Type seven, the enthusiast. So the enthusiast, my youngest daughter, who is 14, we think is a seven because she's so optimistic. She's so happy. But when she sees something, and this is true of all of the numbers, three sevens and eights in the aggressive stance, when they see something, they can never unsee it. Like something has to be done, but just so energized, so enthusiastic. Um, They are great planners. Uh, Matter of fact, sevens 
have more fun planning things than actually doing the things that they plan. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You want a seven to come alongside you when there's an injustice in the world that they have seen and marked as an injustice because they will quickly, and I, I may be alone in this, I think they plan and strategize faster than threes or eights. Uh, okay, so here's my pitch. Perceive, process, present. The type seven perceives injustice and people's pain and need. Uh, they process. They wrestle in their thoughts with whether they should get involved, but then resolve to help people whose pain they connect with. How do they present? They ensure people in pain don't lose hope. They relationally connect with those who are hurting and paint a picture of a happy ending that will be possible if others will do the right thing and become involved. I love that you say uh, ensure people in pain don't lose hope because I get the picture, out of, you know, it's, it's an older movie now and I'm just an old guy now, I guess, is the second Matrix movie where like, hey, we're going to go off to battle, you know, tomorrow. And then they throw this like wild, crazy party. Uh-huh. And like, oh man, a seven had to be in charge of that. Yeah. Right? You know, we're going to go into battle tomorrow and a lot of us are going to die, but we're going to party while we do it. Like one of my favorite uh, homileticians, Fred Craddock used to say like, never trust a leader who can lead a march, but can't lead a parade. And like sevens can lead a parade because that is a sevens place in the world to help us hold on to hope, not as a theological category. Yeah, we have hope because we have these people, we have these good things in our midst right now. And so intellectual sevens are way more intellectual than they get credit for. This idea to dream um, and to illuminate things is just so magnificent there. So I love the way you presented that. Yeah, I definitely want to be a part of this party that's changing the world. Yeah. But what are some non-resourceful things that we see come out of the seven? Sevens oftentimes don't see problems at all. <laughs> That's, so getting a seven on board that a problem that like say a five or a six may see as a problem. Sevens are slower to come to whether or not something is a real problem. But once they're there, you are so fortunate to have them there. Also, when you're dealing with sevens in terms of their own growth, they move out of pain at the rate that fours move into it. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Like they don't want to stay there very long because they haven't come to terms with the pain that they're hearing, the story that they're hearing, what they are feeling is their own pain and not the person who's sharing the story's pain. And they're so accustomed to reframing their pain that it's hard for them to stay in pain very long with you. So matter of fact, like just this morning, as I was saying, like dealing with a couple, I said, like, if you're going to have these conversations with your fiance, who's a seven, like she needs to have a time limit. Like we're going to talk about this for 30 minutes and she can sustain that with you for only that long. Because remember, it's about energy. And after 30 minutes, her energy for that is gone. So that's the place where some adaptation and some growth needs to happen because they are so unaccustomed to dealing with their own pain and to invite them into it creates a dynamic where they're dealing with so much more than people who are used to naming and dealing with their own feelings and pain know is going on. 
Yeah, if it's a hope that can stay grounded as opposed to just an idealistic hope, you know, then they can really make an impact on the world. Let's move on to the gut triad. Let's talk about the body types. So let's let's start with type eight, the powerful person. So how do type eights and the issues of justice intersect? Well, they are the first people to see a problem and see an injustice and then want to do something about it. So an eight sees a problem and they want to do something like right now, today about it. That can lead oftentimes to sort of jumping out of the airplane and building the parachute on the way down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but because so much of eight formation is around injustice that they experienced, they are the first people to hop in to do something about that injustice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's my pitch. So they perceive injustice. They see people's pain and need. How do they process? They feel strength in their bodies. They feel tenderness for those uh, who are hurt and they feel anger towards those who inflicted the wound. How do they present? They locate the abuse of power and use their physical presence and their words to challenge those who have become corrupt or complacent. Yeah, I love what you say about locating the abuse of power. But for AIDS, I think it's important to remember, it's hardly ever personal, right? One of the things they bring to the conversation that's really great is that they see an injustice and they don't, as I would as a three, like personalize it. They would say, this is a problem that needs to be fixed, where a three sees it and says, you're a problem and you mm-hmm. need to be fixed. Yeah. Like, like we take you out of this. And that's actually really good. Um, but they just act on their thoughts. So much instinctive energy. That's who you need in justice work, because oftentimes the rest of us need someone to bring so much energy that we move past, well, you know what? It's just kind of a broken world and there's only so much you can do. You know, let's watch the ball game past the chips. Mm-hmm. Like we actually need people who say like, no, get off your butt. I'm going to challenge you to do something and we're going to do it together. Yeah. When I think of justice, I think of eights first before I think of any other number. But what would you say are some of their non-resourceful traits? Well, Eights can create injustices on their way to fixing injustices. And all aggressive types do this. So it's not just them, but it's felt more strongly because it's because it happens more swiftly. Eights can just absolutely run over people in their attempt to get things done. And remember, justice is often confused emotionally with vengeance. Mm-hmm. So some Enneagram teachers will point to the idea that a high number of eights were abused as children, a high number of people who end up being sort of mafia bosses or gang leaders um, are eights on the Enneagram. And they think in their mind they're working for justice, but justice can often be vengeance. When it is protective, it's beautiful, right? We see people who are being harmed and I'm going to go down and protect them. But AIDS can harm other people on their way to protecting people because they don't think the people they're hurting on their way to protect other people are in as vulnerable a situation. And most AIDS that I know, know this about themselves. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about type nine, our peacemakers. So nines, when I think about nines, 
I think mostly about storytelling in connection to their peacemaking. Because they are so calm, when they are good, they are in such harmony with the people around them, and so balanced that they create great space for people to tell stories. And storytelling is part of how we heal injustice and communicate injustice. So at their most mature, nines are accepting, they're peaceable, and people forget this, they're actually goal-oriented at their most mature. And that's something that's desperately needed for the work of justice, because justice, like no injustice is going to be solved tomorrow. So without people in the mix that are peaceable and accepting, folks who can bring a measure of composure and pleasurableness and love, people who want to reconcile, people who lead through consensus, um, then all of our efforts will ultimately fail. Yeah. Okay, here's my pitch. How do they perceive injustice? Uh, They see people's pain and need. How do they process? Their sleepy body suddenly awakes with anger, which tells them something must be said or done to confront what they're witnessing. How do they present? Their natural gift of diplomacy merges with their deeply felt conviction to begin pursuing change. They become clear in their thinking and move toward hurting people as well as the powers that created the problem. Yeah, I really like what you said about awakens with anger, because a lot of people do get that get that question. It's like, how are nines in the anger triad? Yeah, right? yeah. But that is about, and you'll hear people when they talk about nines, talk about right action. Like when they see something that is wrong in the world and they awaken that anger, they have all of these resources for it because it hasn't been burned out like it has been in eights and ones. Like, this is how, this is what Dallas Willard talks about, like, right? Anger is God's initiation system to us that something is wrong with the world that we should do something about. And we get it all twisted and we handle it unhealthy ways, but that's its fundamental God-given function. Anger is supposed to be that thing that erupts in us when something is wrong. And nines have that in a more pure way than any of the rest of us do. I like that. So what are some of the pitfalls for nines and their paths for growth out of those? Well, to work for justice means naming an injustice. And often that throws the world into disharmony, right? And so if you're seeking harmony all the time, when you realize, oh, things aren't at harmony, the very thing that you have been seeking with all of your energy doesn't exist. And that costs you a lot of energy, right? So because of that, they can see injustice and choose not to deal with it because of the personal cost. They can deny that problems exist and especially their own personal problems. Um, Nines have a tendency to put up boundaries against both internal threats, that anger, right? And external threats. And they they do that more than anyone else, any other number on the Enneagram. All right, let's talk about finally, (laughs) type one, the reformer. (laughs) Okay, so how does this type respond to injustice? Um, With anger. (laughs) Um, I have, um, you know, as I said, mentioned before, I have two two ones that I live with. And they are, and I say this in the healthiest way possible, they are angry all the time. (laughs) So like when they tell me that they're angry, I say, well, of course, you're angry all the time. 
<laughs> yeah, my wife, for one, I'll use my wife rather than my daughter as an example. When she is expressing to me her anger about maybe something that happened at school in her classroom, that is her way of thinking through what she's going to do about it. That's her way of processing. That kind of hypersensitivity to um, what is wrong with the world, but also this willingness to do something about it, this instinct for quality mixed with quality management to actually do something and not just complain. And I think for people who aren't ones, we hear ones talking and it sounds like complaining to us, but that's not what they're doing. And you, it's so essential for making a better world. Yeah. Okay, here's my pitch. When they perceive injustice, they see people's pain and need. Uh, how do they process? Their bodies tighten and they sit upright. Their emotions become intense. They consider the gap between what has happened and what should have happened. How do they present? The anger they frequently hold back is now let loose. Their minds sharpen as they rapidly verbally share the list of legal or moral infractions that have just happened. They use their legal perceptions to make a sound case against injustice. Yeah, I think that's dead on, especially about the intense emotions around things. As my youngest would say, 10 out of 10 on that description. <laughs> Does that feel physically true? The yeah, way that was it just feels described? really good. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's the best one that you wrote. <laughs> I really <laughs> well, liked it. I, I, I wanted it. to make sure. I wanted to make sure that it was precise it was very and precise. accurate. Yes, because I definitely do hold back most of the time. Mm -hmm. But then when you do find the like the outlet, it's mm -hmm. like, and now here it comes. Mm -hmm. All right. So, Sean, what are some of our non-resourceful traits when facing justice issues? If anger can go untamed um, in ones and that partly because they're so comfortable with it. I don't think they realize that other people are super uncomfortable with it. Yeah. Um, and because, so one of the things that happens with, with ones in justice areas where I work is that they don't realize that their anger is being interpreted by everyone else as anger at them, right? And so it creates a relational disconnect. I think actually a one who feels free to express themselves in a certain situ situation actually can create more conflict than an eight because the comfort with inner criticism that ones form over, over their course of their life, they do not realize that the rest of us have not formed that same sort of comfort with criticism. I would say too, as a one, one thing that I experience is I am so skilled at repressing my anger and I am so practiced at it that when it comes out, it's almost uncontrollable because I'm not practiced in letting it out. I'm practiced at keeping it in. So when it comes out, it's it's yet unpracticed. Like and, and then I have all this regret of like, oh, I should have kept it in. Like, like it's hard it's hard to wield it. Yes. And it just came out all over the place. And then also if I've been repressing anger about ten things and you give me one thing where I can express it, it might have the force 
of my anger over the 10 things, yeah. but directed at laser focus at this one thing. Yeah. So it's like all my anger at Y'all my, are like a soda can that's yes, been shaken up. Yes. And it's like, open. I'm angry about parenting and I'm angry about this and I'm angry about that. And then you gave me this one outlet and it's like, yeah. you know, coming out. So, yeah. And I, yeah. I do wonder sometimes if that is particular to the Christian community and especially female ones. Maybe. Because it's it's always been not okay. The message has been it's not okay to be angry. Yeah. And so it just forms a backlog. Yeah. Um okay, let me let me offer a couple of final things um as we just think about uh the relationship between the Enneagram and justice. So for those of you that are listening, you know, the Enneagram is not an excuse to avoid hard or uncomfortable things. So don't just think, oh, well, I'm I'm a five and I'm kind of introverted and therefore I don't need to get involved. I'll just study everything. Whatever your core type is, like that's not an excuse just to live a passive life where you're not engaging issues of injustice. So you're a fully, wholly integrated person, full of action, full of thought and full of affection and emotion. And so, you know, the suggestions for growth should show that all the types, uh, we are all capable of different approaches, many approaches to justice. Second thing is this, approach justice with a community. You know, this isn't a solo activity. The reality is that whether it's a small injustice in your life or whether it's a massive injustice that's going on in the world, um, either way, it can really swallow you whole. And you just, frankly, you don't possess all the gifts. You need those other gifts from other personality types to engage these things. So that is our teaching on the Enneagram and Justice. Stay with us because when we come back, we will be playing Show Me You Know Me with Sean Palmer, plus answering listener questions. We'll be right back. Here at LTN, we believe that in order to be loved, you must be known. And part of being known means understanding who you are which is why we created Mapping Your Enneagram Story. Mapping Your Enneagram Story is a workbook to help you map your life story and understand who you are. Using the lens of the Enneagram, you'll explore how the story you've lived has made you into who you are and why Jesus is the key to living a better story. To get your own copy of Mapping Your Enneagram Story, just go to lovethatneighborhood.org and click the store link at the top of the menu. There, you'll find Mapping Your Enneagram Story, plus all our other Enneagram content. And all proceeds go directly to support Love Thy Neighborhood. So go to lovethyneighborhood.org and click Store. Mapping Your Enneagram Story. Find the clarity you need to have meaningful, long-lasting relationships. Cast Jesse Eubanks, Lindsay Lewis, and now it's time for Show Me You Know Me. Our game today is called Show Me You Know Me. Here's how it works. So, Sean, I'm going to read you a card that asks you something about yourself, along with four answer options. So you can choose A, B, C, or D. Uh, you're going to choose the option that would be your honest answer. If your answer would be something that isn't one of the options on the card, just pick the option that seems the closest to you. So you're going to keep the answer to yourself because Lindsay and I are also going to pick an answer, but not about ourselves. We're going to try to guess the answer that we think you will choose. Okay. We're going to both silently pick our answers, reveal them, 
And then, Sean, you'll reveal your answer. If one of us matches your answer, that person gets a point. If neither of us match your answer, you get a point. We're going to play five rounds. Whoever has the most points at the end wins. Are you both ready to play? Ready. I'm ready. All right, here we go. Question one. If there is a zombie apocalypse, my first move would be, so Sean, this is you answering for yourself, A, panic, hide in the attic, B, siphon a ton of gasoline, hoard supplies, and loot, C, go to Walmart and hook myself up with guns and barricade my house, or D, go on the offensive and start killing zombies and perhaps even people I don't like, as if they are zombies. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Lindsay, what is your your guess? I guessed B. I also guessed B. Sean, what was your answer? Walmart and load up on guns. C. C. So, Sean, you get a point. Neither of us get a point. B was my answer until I heard C. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm just glad to know that you're not doing D and just starting to shoot random people. (laughs) Okay, question number two. Sean's favorite type of vacation is A, relaxing on a beach, B, touring and sightseeing, C, going on cruises, D, hiking and outdoorsy adventures. All right, Lindsay, what do you think? A. You think A, relaxing on a beach? I think B, touring and sightseeing. Sean, what is your answer? B, touring and sightseeing. Oh, man. Nice. Nice. All right. One point for me, one point for Sean. Zero points for Lindsay. Question number three. Sean does the following with his spare change. A, he gives it to people in need. B, uses it for tips. C, he saves it. D, leaves it somewhere or sometimes just flat out loses it. So A, gives it to people in need. B, uses it for tips. C, saves it. D, leaves it somewhere or sometimes loses it. Lindsay, what is your answer? I'm torn between C and D. Mm-hmm. I think I'll go with D. You're going to go with D? I also am going to go with D. Sean, what do you say? D. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> nice. Yeah, change is... I think that's just everybody. All Change adults. is old school, antiquated. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know what to do with it when I have it. <laughs> okay, question number four. When a new gadget or gizmo comes out, Sean, A... Rushes to upgrade or get the newest one. B, buys a slightly older version for a discounted price. C, keeps his current one until he's forced to upgrade. D, laughs at the idiots standing in line for the new version. (laughs) What do you think? A. You think A, he goes and he gets the newest one? Yep. Uh, I actually think B. I think B. Sean, which one is it? Well, I've done all of those things at different <laughs> points. Con- for consistency, D, I laugh at the people in line. Sean gets another point. So, Okay, final round, final question. If Sean could only use one condiment for the rest of his life, <laughs> he would choose A, ketchup, B, mustard, C, hot sauce, D, Something else. Oh, well, that's Ketchup, broad. mustard, hot sauce, something else. He can only choose one condiment. Okay. What are you going to go with? Hot sauce. You're going to go with hot sauce? I'm going to go with ketchup. Sean, what is your answer? 
Ketchup is really enticing, but you left it too wide open. I have to go with D, something else, only so I could have barbecue oh, for the rest of my life. Yeah. Houstonian over here. Yeah. yeah. Makes yeah. sense. Okay. Well, you just made, te- you made Texas proud, and you are the winner. <laughs> Oh, well, great. I'm an expert on me of all the people. <laughs> like, I feel like that's insider trading of some kind, but thanks. I'm glad to win. <laughs> you, you showed yourself, you know yourself. <laughs> all right. And now it's time for listener questions. All right, this question comes from Gakers16. How does the Enneagram relate to racial justice? I think probably in the way that it relates to um, greater themes of justice that we've been talking about. In particular, I think with racial justice is that part of the issue with racial justice in America is that people don't know each other. And one of the things that the Enneagram teaches fundamentally is that the way you see the world and the way you experience the world, the way you take it in, is not universal. And that's so much of the work toward racial justice is, is knowing that an event A happens, there are lots of people who are receiving and perceiving that in very different ways and through different lenses. And I think that's a necessary step we need to take for racial justice and maybe the, the most crucial. Yeah. Okay, this question comes from THX 1138. Won't focusing on the Enneagram distract from doing justice work? Um, If you see justice work as foundationally restorative, then it's exactly the opposite. Because what we're trying to do is restore people, even folks working for justice and not just the recipients of justice, to the full image and likeness of God. And that means knowing people completely and wholly. And so... We haven't restored justice just because we have fixed a perceived problem if people aren't experiencing flourishing and wholeness. And so in that context, the Enneagram is super helpful because we're not just trying to treat people as items on a to-do list or boxes to check to say like, oh, you were unjustly imprisoned or you experienced racial discrimination and like we fixed that one thing but to bring all of us to um, the fullness of our glory in Christ takes knowing all of us and giving us a path and a strategy to become who we were intended to be. Mm, Yeah, that's good. Well, Sean, thank you so much for your time today and for being with us and sharing all of your thoughts on justice. It's really been good talking with you. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you guys for having me. It's been great. Special thanks to our guest today, Sean Palmer. You can find all of his books, including his 40 Days on Being a Three Enneagram Daily Reflections by going to Amazon or wherever good books are sold. You can also check out his other writings and his podcasts, Not So Black and White, by going to Missio Alliance's website at missioalliance.org. This show is brought to you by Love Thy Neighborhood. Love Thy Neighborhood provides social action internships supported by Christian community for young adults ages 18 to 30. Serve for a summer or a year and grow in your faith and life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org. 
This episode was edited by Rachel Zabo, Lindsay Lewis, and myself. Rachel's also our media director and producer. Anna Tran is our audio engineer. Music for today's episode comes from Murphy DX. I'm Lindsay Lewis. And I'm Jesse Eubanks. Remember, the eye can see everything but itself. Find people to journey with you because you were created for community. Community.